0: Second Thessalonians chapter three. It's our privilege to gather here to worship our Lord and Savior. And I'm always pleased to stand in this pulpit and just look over the congregation and to think of the special bond that we have with each other. This past year has been a very difficult year. Uh, I can say that this past month for us has been a very difficult month. Uh, as a church, we've seen things, and and as Americans, we've seen things that we've not seen before. We've been put into positions that we thought were very unlikely to happen. But through it all, our church has pulled together, and in these return to services, we are constantly reminded of the bond that we have in Christ. That after being gone for so long, that we still... Know who our membership is. We still know who we, we know each other. Although some of you hardly hardly recognize me today, uh, we know each other, and we're we have this common bond, and we are united to each other because of the common salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ, and as we are all united to Christ, we are united. With each other, as Paul wrote in Colossians three, verse three, our life is hidden with Christ in God. So fellowship with each other is established because of the fellowship that we have in Christ. And yet, in this blessed union, there are times when God's people step out of the way. There are times when God's people become unruly, and that's pretty much the language of Scripture. In this blessed union, there are often problems. There are times when sin enters into the church, and the fellowship that we have with each other begins to break down. This tight bond of fellowship that we have can be broken, and when that happens, the work of the Lord in the church is hindered. When we sin and disobey, there are times when God's blessings are withheld from the body of believers, the Lord's church. And even the sin of one member that is left unchecked, a sin that is not dealt with, can become a cancer that infects the entire body of Christ. And so thus we must deal with sin. Wherever we find sin, we must deal with it. We must do our best to correct members that by their testimony, by their lifestyles, they are inconsistent with the new life that we have as believers in Christ. As I said earlier, the Lord wants a holy church, Paul described God's desire for the church here in the Thessalonian letters. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, if you care to look, verse number 12, it says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And the best way that we can demonstrate holiness and model our care for each other in the Lord's church is to watch over one another, to watch over each other's lives. And when we see that our lives or the lives of other people in our church don't promote Christ, then we're to check that sin down and we're to work on correcting ourselves and first of all, and then of course, erring members. And this is the thrust of this part of the study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're looking at the apostles command for restoring good order in the church when anyone in the membership lives contrary to the obedience of the gospel. Now I'd like you to look at verse number 5 in the third chapter. I want to, I want to start with that. Then the apostle says here, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting Christ. So that is what we need to deal with first. Whatever the apostle says next in, in this letter is for the purpose of the Christian walking in the love of God. And whatever we do to obey this next information is not for the harm of any believer. We don't seek the harm of anyone in the church. What we seek is unity in the faith through the love of God for his people. Although the Bible's Commands are often hard for us to do. They're hard on our flesh. Many times we don't want to do them. And though correction of the membership is difficult, the purpose of it is always to sanctify that we will be well-pleasing to the Savior. Our key thought today is taken from verse 6 and verse 14. Uh, Of course, there are many other related thoughts that are in the verses in between, but I I want to concentrate on verses 6 and 14 to gather our thoughts about discipline in the church. In verse number 6, the apostle says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. And in verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. And before I get into the message, I I, I was thinking about this as I was looking over notes today. Pronouns. I still use the old pronouns. uh, When... We refer to mankind or whatever. I'm still he and him. That still refers to everybody. It's not just a he and a him. There won't be any of the zerks and z's and whatever's when I preach. I'll stick with, you know, I'll stick with he and him's and that will stand good for everybody. And you'll know when it's specifically talking about a man. But in general, in these passages that we read in the way that I talk, I'm including men and women in that. So I want you to understand that. I'm not woke enough for anything else. (laughs) Now, in in the past two messages, I have talked about, and these are quite some time ago because of my long absence, but I've talked about the command for conformity, that the Lord's Church is not a group of individuals who are free to worship and to live and to act and be self-sufficient and be independent parts of the church. Now, the the Bible specifically refers to the church as a body, that we are a body united, that we are a body of Jesus Christ. And yes, it is true, we are made up of individual members, but we are members that work together as a homogenous whole so that we look alike, we think alike, we act alike, and everything that we do is for the glory of Jesus Christ. We have this one pressing goal in our hearts, and that is how may we best exemplify Christ in our lives, how that our testimony will best serve Him and bring others into the kingdom of God. The Bible has guidelines for the way that we do this. There is a, a method that enables us to accomplish this goal. It's scattered throughout the New Testament. This is what it's mostly about. And here we have a part of that in these two verses that we talked about today. How do we keep the church holy? How do we best exemplify the life of Jesus Christ? How do we make sure the church is what God wants it to be? Now notice in verse number 6 that to maintain holiness, we must walk after the traditions that is received from the apostles. And in verse number 14, it's to obey the words of Paul that are written in this epistle. And by extension, everything that is written, all the word of God and all the epistles written for us to follow and to obey. What are these traditions? Well, the traditions are... All the commands in Scripture that are written under God's inspiration, whether those commands come from Jesus Christ Himself, whether they come from the apostles, if they come from the prophets, all of this is God's Word. All of it is for us to follow. It's written for God's people today to live according to these commandments that are given sanctified living by what is called here the traditions is the method of our holiness. And any way that departs from this, from the holy commandments, from these traditions as it's called, is to live disorderly. And the Bible says here that we are to withdraw from the person who walks disorderly. We are to walk, uh, we are to withdraw from that person who is not conformed to Christ and to others in the membership who are conformed to Christ. Now, that's what it takes to maintain the unity of the faith. This is what it means to partake of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's the church living in holiness and in strict conformity to the commands of Christ Christ. And so when anyone steps out of that order, that is walking disorderly. Now, it's like the human body when it gets sick. It's like having a virus that affects every other part of the body. It must be fought. That sickness must be fought. It must be removed. It must be cut out before it destroys and, and kills the body. And I know that sounds harsh when we talk about cutting things out. And I, and I don't mean that our first option when we see sin is to take a surgical knife and cut that person out of the body. That's not what I mean at all. Now, when you have a blister on your finger, the first thing that you do, you don't grab a knife or a hacksaw and cut your finger off. Well, the first thing that you do is apply medicine to it. You care for it. You try to take care of it. You nurse it back to health. And only when it's apparent that a wound that you have will not heal and there's danger of it infecting the hand and then the arm and then the torso and it could kill you, that's when you cut it out. That's when you get rid of it. Now, next in the passage, now that's that's things we've already talked about. Next in the passage is the discipline of the disorderly. And, and this is the place where we left off last time. Verse number 6 is right at the point where the apostle wrote and encouraged the church and taught them what the Lord expects, how they are to live. But then there were some among them that didn't get with the program that Paul outlined for the Lord's church. They were told what to do, but they didn't respond to the word, and so they became a problem in the church. They developed into busybody gossips. that were going from house to house and causing trouble. Now, the specific problem in Thessalonica was those that had quit their jobs, and what they did, they just sat down. They did nothing but stir up trouble as they were waiting for the Lord to return. That is the Thessalonian problem. That's the specifics of what Paul addresses here. But what I want you to see from this, it's like many other texts that we have in the Bible, that this text allows us to expand beyond the current problem that's here in the Thessalonica church, to expand beyond that and apply the fix to this problem to any issue that causes the church harm through people living disorderly and not after the commandments. These are the instructions about what to do to correct these problems and thereby purify the church. Now holiness, this issue of holiness, this is an ongoing, daily, forever concern of God's people. We must live holy lives so as not to be ashamed when our Lord returns. And so what does the Lord expect from me and you? He expects us to guard His church, to enforce what... The scriptures say about how to guard the church so that the church remains holy and unblameable in the Lord's sight. Now the Bible uses marriage terms to describe this. Concepts such as a pure bride, a chaste virgin, Christ as our husband and we the church as his wife. We find the language of love, it's the language of respect between two partners that are totally, just totally faithful to each other. It shows up in sweet terms like you see in the Song of Solomon where it says, my dove, my undefiled, my love. Or in passages such as in the Psalms, keep me as the apple of the eye. Now wouldn't it be wonderful if everything that we thought of doing was done this way, that we approached it that way? Would you think of it this way? Would you ever be unfaithful to your husband or your wife? A sin against Christ and the church is a sin of infidelity. Have you thought about it that way? That any sin that you love above Christ and put above his body is like being adulterous in marriage. In fact, the scriptures use those very terms in both the Old and New Testaments to describe the unfaithfulness of God's covenant people. He called their sin adultery. And that is truly a sobering thought. But you need to understand, we've got to think as God thinks. We must see the church as Christ sees the church. And we must recognize what it does to the heart of Christ when His bride loves sin more than it loves God. Him. It's infidelity. It's the sin of spiritual adultery. In my last message, I briefly spoke of the church as its own disciplinary court. And I made this point that the church is the right place for discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle made it clear that all disciplinary actions are internal actions. We make no application for adjudication of our disputes outside to anyone outside this body of believers. The Lord expects that we will take care of our own affairs, and you can take that literally and figuratively. Christ gave the church the authority to discipline the membership. And this is the reason that we see Paul in 2 Thessalonians telling the church to withdraw from the disorderly person. This is a decision of the church that is made after evaluating sin in the person's life. And I want to doubly emphasize this point that it is the right of the church. The church does have the right to investigate your life. And when you become a member of of this church, you sign up for this, you allow this... In fact, a holy, righteous saint of God wants to be accountable to the church. We want this. We desire this. We want the watch care over our lives so that if we go wrong, there's someone there to help us. There's someone someone in the church to advise us and help us to work through the problems and bring us back into righteous fellowship with God and his people. And this is one of the reasons that you seek church membership is so that you become accountable to others and you receive help from them. And so this body of believers has the right to examine your life to see if you are in good standing. And sometimes it's not all that difficult for us to do. And this is because many people in the church make their lives an open book on social media. So all that we need to do is just check the social media to see if you are a good example of Jesus Christ and if you are a good testimony for the church. Do you help or do you hinder the church? And so if that's you, if you're the person that likes to put it all out there on the social media so everybody can see, you ought not to complain when we read it. You ought not to complain if you've made your life an open book of sin and we decide to come along and slam that book shut. It affects the Berean Baptist Church. But at the same time, I do want you to understand that it is not my responsibility or the responsibility of any member of this church to follow you around and check up on you and see what you're doing. We don't need to be doing that. It's, it's, It's not our policy to constantly follow you and police you. And why won't we do that? Well, I'll tell you why I don't do it. I don't do it because when I see a person confess Christ, I automatically understand that their salvation is surrender to the Lordship of Christ and that it is expected and I assume that the Holy Spirit is living in you and directing you and increasing your sanctification as you learn His will and His way. So we don't have hall monitors. We don't have a holy police force here. We don't want that. We don't really want members following each other around and judging each other, especially if they haven't done what the Lord commanded in Matthew chapter 7. There he said, before you consider the splinter that's in your brother's eye, make sure you take the log out of your own eye. Christians that police others are often pulling a trailer full of logs behind them like they've been out in the woods cutting down trees. I know this much from the word of God. You can't escape the consequences of sins that you think you've hidden. God says, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So you're not going to hide sin for very long. It will find you out. It will follow you. It will show itself. And when it does, we must act. Well, I want to move on from this. What is the purpose? Discipline. And I think that we've answered that to some degree, but to make it clearer, let me give you two purposes for discipline. In church discipline, there is something accomplished for the believer and something accomplished for the body. Now, what is then the advantage for the believer? This is the advantage. The believer is restored to fellowship. Now, you'll notice our text says that when a believer has not made the necessary corrections and must be disciplined that the church must withdraw from him. The church must withdraw from him. Now you can read and read and read and you can find many opinions about what it means to withdraw from the disorderly. I don't really think that it's all that mysterious and hard to understand. To withdraw is to end social contact with that person. The language of 1 Corinthians 5 may be helpful here. In 1 Corinthians, the sin of of an offending member was a sexual sin. And there the apostle says, I have written unto you not to keep company. And the meaning there is not to associate with that person. Well, how do we then stop our association? If the person comes to church and they continue to come to church... Well, we are forced into some form of association with them, and we hesitate to use words like shunning because it recalls a puritanical form of discipline that most people think is cruel. That's just a cruel thing to do. But like many practices of the Puritans, there's a biblical foundation for it. I'll not speak to the abuses of that principle, but it is scriptural for members of the church to shun association with those who continue to live in sin without repentance. Now, obviously, if we are to shun them in the assembly of the church, it wouldn't be appropriate to fellowship with them outside of the church. The purpose of the separation is to make them recognize that their sin is so egregious to the fellowship and the well-being of the church that drastic measures must be taken. And we see it in our text of 2 Thessalonians. Paul wrote in verse 14 again, he says, "...and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man..." And have no company with him. What? That he may be ashamed. We shun them so that they will be ashamed. So what we've done is we've made a judgment between the godly and the ungodly. And it's based on their actions, not ours. They should be ashamed of what they've done. And we're considered to be righteous for what we do in protecting the church. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I asked you to hold on to that earlier We can look at this together. I have never asked you to do anything different from what the Bible tells you to do. And as members of the same body, this is the discipline that is commanded by the apostle. Now, I remind you, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a sexual sin. It is called fornication. This is a very broad term in Scripture. It includes any form of sexual misconduct. So it includes adultery, it includes homosexuality, it includes transgenderism and pedophilia, any gross perversions of sexuality that you know about, probably some things you don't even know about. We're learning those every day, aren't we? But fornication isn't the only sin that he mentions in the text. are There are other sins that rise to the level of discipline it must be taken care of. Now beginning in verse number nine, first Corinthians chapter five. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Now let me explain. The Apostle is Writing to the church and he tells them, do not associate with fornicators. And he explains, I'm not talking about, he says, I'm not talking about people that are outside of the church, people that are sinners, not ones that you live and work among every day. We have no control over what they do. And they're the people that we witness to. They're the subject of our evangelistic efforts. We give them the gospel so they will be convicted to change from what they are, to become believers in Jesus Christ and to serve him. We, we couldn't separate from people that are in the world entirely because we'd have to be hermits living in caves somewhere. No, his meaning though here is, is that we must make a conscious choice, a decision to separate from people who will not live and act as believers. A person who is living in adultery or any form of fornication, that's all those things that I mentioned, does not act like a believer. Notice how he clarifies in verse number 11, "But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat." Now under discussion, we see that this person that we're dealing with here is called a brother. Uh, That is, he's in the church. He's a part of the membership. And he's in unrepentant sin. And the apostle says the church is to have nothing to do with him. He says, do not eat with him. Now that's just, uh, just, just a way of saying, don't have any kind of ordinary fellowship with him, and especially in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now he goes on in verse number 12. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without Do ye not judge them that are within? That means there is no ability. We have no ability to judge people outside of the church. We have no authority over them to do anything to them that would make them change their habits. But we do have this ability within the church. We are to judge the obstinate, unruly behavior of church members and separate from them. Now in verse 13, he says that God is responsible to judge people outside the church. We are to judge people inside the church. The church is the right place for the discipline of believers. So in verse 13, he says, but them that are without, God judgeth. You don't have anything to do with that. God takes care of it. But because that you are to take care and judge inside the church, he says about this situation, therefore, put away from among yourselves... That wicked person, the one he's just discussed, is guilty of fornication. And in our text of 2 Thessalonians, once again, Paul writes in verse 14, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Well, how do we judge them? What is judgment? What is its judgment? Well, as, our body, as a body, our judgment is, the verdict that we passed, is To put them out. This is an action that's intended to shock the spirit. I mean, what true Christian wouldn't think that being put out of the church is the worst possible action that can be taken? There's no true believer that can stand this. And the action is meant to be serious enough that that person sits up and pays attention. There's no cruelty involved in this. It's an act of love to try to restore that person. How is that? Well, if we let it go, if we pretend that it didn't happen, then the offender would just continue in his sin. If there is no correction, there is no blessing. There is no fellowship with the Lord. If there is no correction, there is no challenge for that person to examine his faith to see if he is a child of God. That is what we want. Unconfessed sin is a sign of unbelief. So how could we love a person if we don't challenge them to consider the most important aspect of their eternal existence? Because what are we without salvation? What are we without fellowship with God? Well, I can tell you what we are. We're lost. We're lost. We're on our way to hell. And the church dares not to be a party in that deception. Church that doesn't practice discipline... Unless a confessing member continue to sit in the pew and still be a member of church, the church body, that church is nothing but the author of confusion. Now, the purpose of discipline is to restore the person to fellowship. It's to force them to evaluate their salvation. And if they are true believers, the Holy Spirit will convict them and bring them back. Now, sadly... For that person who gets upset with this process, who gets upset with discipline, who refuses to repent and come back into fellowship, that person has no no reason to believe they truly are a child of God. Too often what we do is we fool ourselves into believing that people that are in sin, oh, they're just backslidden. They just got away a little bit. But they'll still slide into heaven under the wire. That's not what the Word of God says. Word of God says the unrepentant sinner, people who themselves shun the church and the discipline of the church, are not to be considered believers. Now, I want you to notice, though, that in the text of 2 Thessalonians 3, that the sin considered does not rise to the seriousness of sexual misconduct. We're not talking here about the level of drunkenness. This is not the level of idolatry. The sin here, rather, is they, they just didn't work. And they were busybodies. They were gossipers. That's a serious sin. And to Paul, he says, Paul says this in verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy. Don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Well, what do we gather from that? Well, I think that we gather that we're not to exclude people from the membership of the church until we've given them time to repent, until we've had time to work with them. We've shunned them for a while, for such a time, as we've determined that non-repentance makes us conclude they are unbelievers. Now, this this is not the case that we see in 1 Corinthians. Sexual sins, drunkenness, idolatry, those are sins of a different nature. These are sins that require an immediate response. And the church is not obligated to take any steps in removing that person from membership. I know some of you that are Maybe all of you that are good Bible students, you're going to ask about Matthew 18. What about Matthew 18? In Matthew 18, uh, there it says uh, a person goes to an offender and takes steps to resolve the issue. And if that doesn't work, you take a second person with you and you try to go and resolve it that way. If it still doesn't work, then you bring that offender or the situation before the church and let the church judge it. Now, we have to be careful to note, though, that what Matthew 18 is talking about is disagreements between individuals. This is how we resolve situations, disputes between two members of the church. Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 5 is not that scenario. And so you don't see any steps before the apostle says, you need to separate from that person and put them out of the church. So the difference here is the type of sin and the fact that 1 Corinthians is not a disagreement between two brothers in the church. This is a sin against the entire church. And I want you to think about that. When you commit the types of sins that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians, adultery, fornication, idolatry, drunkenness, those are sins against the entire body of believers. And we should put those people out of the church. That is not to say that we don't try to restore them. we put them out because we want to restore them. We put them out, we shun them, we have no association, no fellowship with them because we want it to be crystal clear they have offended the entire assembly. And what discipline is there on earth that is more demanding than being put out of the Lord's church? I mean, one way or another, there are eternal consequences to this. Either the person will be corrected, and brought back into fellowship and blessings, or he will be cut off and assumed to be an unbeliever. And the Bible says if they don't repent, treat them as an unbeliever. That's the difference between 2 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians and Matthew 18. The difference is the magnitude of the sin, who is offended by the sin, and the attitude of the person who sins. And whichever the case, wherever that falls... We want to restore the person to fellowship if possible. If they are believers, we want them back in fellowship. If they are unbelievers, we want to reach them with the gospel of Christ. Now, I'd like you to embed this next scripture into your mind regarding the responsibility to each other as members of the Lord's body. This is Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do I need to ask you what is the law of Christ? I hope you know this. I hope you know that the law of Christ is this. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Confronting people about their sin is not the act of a nosy Christian. It's an act of love for that person. So how can a church say this? Oh, we just loved people too much to question them about their sin and discipline them. We love them too much. We, we act as if church discipline is an unfair imposition when God says, no, this is what you must do to help that person who is in sin. The goal is restoration. Not to avoid, to avoid their embarrassment. The Bible said they ought to be ashamed. So we want people to be restored because we want to, to help them. We save families, we save relationships, we gain fellowship. And so we just don't release them to the world where they'll never receive God's blessings. So that's the first purpose of discipline, to restore the believer to fellowship. Now, there's another purpose, and I can't say that this one is second because it's inferior to the first. There's nothing on earth that is of higher priority or more importance than the Lord's church. Why do we practice discipline? Also for this reason, the body is restored to blessings. The body, sin affects us. Sin hurts the church. It always hurts the church. And the degree to which we let sin fester in the church is the degree to which our blessings are taken away. The goal of the church is a pure church. Because a pure church is a blessed church. So the entire body is protected by discipline. If we allow sin in the church, there's always the danger that others will fall into it. It's like having an open pit. If we have an open pit in the middle of the aisle, and you don't look, you'll fall into it. That's what we're trying to avoid. Now, taking you back to Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, listen, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted... Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The whole church is affected by the sin of the unrepentant. So what does Christ want? One of the metaphors for the church is that the church is the bride of Christ. We've mentioned that in Revelation 2 verse 12, or 21 verse 2 rather. The bride of Christ is identified with the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that Christ has gone to prepare for his people. There it says, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, obviously, a city can't be a bride, so John must be referring to the people of the city. These are the ones that are in the church. They are the redeemed from this special age in which we are now living. In 2 Thessalonians, those were people that were waiting for the Lord to return. We are still the church that is waiting for the Lord to return. We're still living in this age. So we have this blessed privilege that it talks about here, of being in the bride of Christ. The church is His bride, and then at the rapture, the bride will be taken up and taken away. And then we will live in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem. Now, we notice what Paul says about the virtues of the Lord's bride. This is what he writes in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy And without blemish. Now, folks, this is when the whole church becomes bigger than the feelings of just a few individuals. We don't want to put people out of the church. But more than not wanting people put out of the church, we don't want to risk the spiritual health of the whole church because one will not repent. As one author said, The last thing that any church wants to do is to ostracize and remove a member due to unrepentant sin. Nothing is more painful for a congregation to walk through. And yet the greater concern for the whole church compels us to love the purity of the church more than even our own feelings. And it compels us to follow the instructions of Christ towards erring members in hope that repentance and restoration will take place. I will confess to you that I agonize over the discipline of members. Sometimes, these are members that have been here for years. Most of the time, they're our dear friends. Sometimes, they're very friendly, they're sweet, and they do things for you. It's hard. But we can't put personal feelings above the commands of Scripture. Felt commands are... are, Felt needs, rather, are not above the commands of Scripture. And quite honestly, our our personal feelings should always be in line with the Scriptures. And if we have the mind of Christ, they will be. Our feelings should change when we learn the will of God for our lives. And quite frankly, the will of God for our lives is always to obey His commandments. So discipline, then, is a purging process. Either we bring the person back, into fellowship because they repented of their sins or we put the person out of the church to preserve the purity of the church. Both of those methods purge out sin. We prefer to gain our brother. We prefer to purge the church by repentance rather than by exclusion. But Christ is glorified either way if we're following his commands. He's glorified by the obedience of one to repent or by the obedience of many to cut away the offender. Church discipline is commanded. We're God's people and we must be taught to obey. Now in the case of discipline, we teach through our actions not just our words. We discipline because we love people. We do it because we love you and we love Christ. This is the law of Christ. So those are the two great motives. We try to give you what you need. We give you something that will, that will help you, which is a relationship with God's people. You receive the guarantee of God's blessings because of the purity of holiness. We do not want to be a church that tolerates sin because that kind of church is not truly Christ's bride. He desires a bride that is unspotted from the filth of the world. So how can anybody say, well, it's better to present Christ with an unholy bride than to give him exactly what he says that he will have. So do you know why churches don't practice discipline? Well, if you're not concerned about the holiness of your own life, your own personal holiness, you're not going to be too much concerned about the holiness of others. If you are afraid that you're going to be exposed in your sin because the church has suddenly gone on this quest for holiness and you're afraid what they'll find out, you're not going to be too anxious to join in that quest to make Christ's bride a chaste bride. So you can find a church, another church, that will tolerate just about any sin that you desire. We are not that church. We have members who leave our church Because they want to live in adultery. What do they do? Well, if they desire to find a church, then they just go find the one that doesn't confront their sin. I'm not concerned with what the world thinks about our church. I don't care if they think we're too harsh. I only care what Christ says because he's the only judge that I'm going to face. The only one that you will face. And he's going to look at this church and he'll ask the question, What did you do? to keep my bride holy and pure. And I pray to high heaven we have the right answer to his question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again confessing our sins and know that there is simply no way that we can live up to all these demands that are in Scripture, not by ourselves. We can't do it. But we know, Lord, you've given us the Holy Spirit who works in us. And through our imperfections, the Holy Spirit is purging us and sanctifying us. And if we will simply obey, then we've met all the requirements that have been asked. We can't be a church that denies what you say in your word and still say that we are the chaste bride of Christ. It's just not consistent and it's not what your word says. Uh, we want to do things the right way. We do not seek to hurt people. You know that. Your word, your word says that d- discipline is not an act of, act of harm for a believer. Well, this is the way that we become what you want us to be. Help us to be that, Lord. I pray for anyone who's here today that, that hears this message and really can't understand much about what we're talking about or the importance of it. I pray that you would enlighten the hearts of people, first of all, towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not until Christ is known and not until that desire becomes a part of the innermost being by sanctification of the Holy Spirit, regeneration through the Holy Spirit, not until those things are done will anyone understand why this is so important to us. Why does this rise to the level of something that we preach about on a Sunday morning and teach your people? It's because we have been regenerated and we know that we are to love Christ with everything that we are. And that includes being faithful to everything that is in your word. Help us, Lord, to do this. We pray for the unconverted. We pray for salvation of their souls. Then we also pray for the obstinate Christian who has difficulty seeing this. Help them, and then we pray for those who say, Preach on, preach on, tell us the truth. We want to know the truth. We pray for them, too, that they will always be guarded and protected from the harm that Satan tries to bring every day. Help us, Lord. We give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, Please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.